0: Thank you.
1: It's Jonathan, and welcome back to Every Version Ever. Today, I'm joined by my friend Conrado to talk about what is, in our opinions, one of Steven Spielberg's best films, AI Artificial Intelligence. I've wanted to cover this movie for a long time, it's one of my favorite sci-fi films, and I'd always kept Conrado in the back of my mind as an ideal co-host for this one, partially because I knew he also loved this movie, and partially because, for some reason, I was under the impression that this was a Criterion film, and Conrado hosts the Criterion project with Rachel Wagner, so I thought this would be a great crossover episode. But I really have no idea why I thought this was a Criterion film, because apparently it is not, but who cares, I still want to do it anyway. Plus, this movie, depending on how you want to look at it, in a way is a very loose adaptation of Pinocchio, or at the very least relies very heavily on the story of Pinocchio throughout the entire film, so with me being in the middle of a series on Pinocchio, I figured this would be the perfect excuse to cover it on the podcast. I thought about doing this one first because, like, I really loved this movie years ago and I hadn't seen it in ages. Mm -hmm. And I was doing a Pinocchio series and I was like, I think I could fit this in on a technicality.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think that's fair.
1: When did you first watch this movie?
2: I first watched this movie, I think. It wasn't when it was in theaters, but it must have been on DVD right after, maybe the year after or a couple of years after it was. Um, I was young. I must have been around nine or ten when it came out. So I watched that on, on DVD and I found it incredibly, incredibly scary and disturbing i i was not ready for it <laughs> at the time um and so i didn't like it very much because of that but then when i watched it again as an adult i i really loved it
1: i'm not sure when i first watched it i was probably mid-teens because it was after like when i was a kid like pg-13 movies were forbidden and it wasn't until oh, i was wow. like Mm-hmm. Probably like 14 before I convinced my mom to let me watch a PG 13 movie. Right. So once once I had the green light, I started checking out all sorts of things from the library, mostly like science fiction stuff. And this right. is one of them.
2: And this, I assume this must be a PG 13, right? I actually yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it is kind of disturbing for kids. But I do remember kids my age at the time were seeing it, like, you know, like kids in my class or things like that. Mm hmm.
1: I think there's lots of kids who watch PG-13 movies.
2: Yeah. And I think there's Spielberg and, you know, it, it, there's a kid as a protagonist. So maybe there was a little bit of that as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think this probably would be something that people might assume is a kid's movie, mm-hmm. but I would not say that this is a kid's movie. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I wouldn't say that either. Although, well, no, yeah, it's very disturbing. It's very scary. I think for a kid, um, the imagery is really, really nightmarish. I remember what what really got me as a kid was that whole demolition derby scene. Um, mm. I I find that so scary when I was a kid. I, I yeah, like I couldn't get it out of my head after watching it.
1: Yeah, I well, I I have other thoughts about that but I'll talk about that when we get there Sure. <laughs> yeah there was a lot of this movie that was like I don't know I don't want to say like I was disturbed but like I the implications probably were more disturbing than watching it on screen if that makes sense like because some mm-hmm. of the stuff I guess I'm getting into it, some of the stuff especially the demolition derby I could see that happening in real life
2: right yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the closer, you know, we get to an age where AI is, you know, like AI wasn't that much of a concept back when the movie first came. I mean, obviously it's something that we knew about, but it was kind mm-hmm. of like in the future. Whereas now it's like everywhere, you know, like on Twitter every day, people are talking about like, oh, this AI that can like make realistic pictures or this other AI that can mimic your voice or, you know, so mm-hmm. it's, it's much it feels much more relevant in that way, or it feels like it doesn't feel like science fiction, I guess is what I'm trying to say as much. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to picture all of that happening. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The the part, like a lot of it I could see happening. I can't imagine, I mean, I could be totally wrong, but I can't imagine we'll get to the point where we have trouble deciding whether machines have souls or anything. But like, if if we ever did, Mm-hmm. the way Humanity reacted to them in the movie that I kind of found disturbing like they're just if there's any chance that they did have a soul then it's disturbing that they immediately want to murder them
2: <laughs> yeah 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 I mean those are yeah those are interesting questions that are that are being asked in this movie I guess um and and I I don't know for such a long time my relationship with this movie was thinking of all of those questions as kind of metaphor, right? And now it's becoming a little bit less so a little (laughs) more like, sure, it's a metaphor for humanity, but also Mm -hmm. we might have to ask ourselves someday, what are we going to do with all these robots and all these artificial intelligence?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, like I said,
1: I don't know that I can imagine that happening, but maybe like, it seems like if it does, it would be so far in the future that it's not something I would need to worry about.
2: I hope so. (laughs) It's not a question that I want to be, you know, debating on on the news or something. I just can't just imagine like the whole news cycle about that. It would be horrific.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know I'm doing this as part of a series on Pinocchio. It's not necessarily based on Pinocchio. There's a lot of inspiration Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: like the use of the actual book Pinocchio but right. it's actually based more off of a short story by someone named Brian Aldis right? called Super Toys Last All Summer Long, I believe. Uh-huh. Have you read the short story?
2: I have not, actually. And I always forget that this is based on, on a short story, actually. Um, and I always think of like you, I think of it as a sort of pinocchio homage. but I yeah, uh-huh. but it is based on this other story. Have you read it? i I'd be curious. To, I, to...
1: I read it a couple days ago when I was doing my notes and stuff.
2: oh, great. is it is it a close adaptation or my feeling is that probably takes some liberties, Yeah?
1: It's very short. So the scene. There is a scene in the movie that is based more on Super Toys Last All Summer Long, and they've kind of fleshed out a world around that story because it was only one scene. Oh, um, okay. But there's actually two sequels to it, and one of the hmm. sequels sort of inspired the Flesh Fair, the Demolition Derby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wasn't exactly the same, but the idea was there.
2: Right. And what is the what is the scene that that comes from the first for the original version?
1: Monica and Henry, they're like at at the beginning of the story, you don't know that David is a robot. It's not revealed till the end that uh, he's a robot. He and Teddy are talking about whether I think like whether she truly loves him or something. And then it's the scene where he's like writing the notes to her, and there's one of the notes was like, "I love you, and I'm real, and Teddy's not something like right.
2: that right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so it's Dad.
1: Yeah, and then it talks about, like, at the beginning of the movie, there's, like, one line about population control, and Mm. it's kind of based on that because at the end, they are allowed to have a child, and then they're talking about getting rid of David, but he's unaware of what, what they're talking about.
2: Oh, okay. I got you. So so the, so the setup's a little different, right? I guess it's kind of more like you're not allowed to have a child until they let you, yeah. instead of the movie's version of, like, we got him because our child was sick and on the brink of death and that kind of thing, right?
1: Yeah. I, I think that in the short story, there's, like, a lottery, and their number uh, came up. Right. And then in the second one, that's the one where it's not really based on like there's nothing in the movie i don't think that's based on the second one uh-huh. and in the second one he accidentally kills teddy which i did not like because i love teddy
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny to know that teddy was in their source material though that's
1: yeah that's
0: very, yeah
1: yeah he was he was there from the beginning
0: mm-hmm.
1: and in the second one she has lost the child So they were going to have a baby and she has lost it so they've kept david
2: you know it's also funny thinking of pinocchio that that in the second story david kills teddy just like in the original pinocchio pinocchio kills uh, jiminy cricket you know and then the movie version oh my goodness i
1: forgot about that that's true
2: they stop doing that yeah (laughs) they keep the character yeah yeah that is very
1: true i forgot about that i wonder how much of the original stories were inspired by pinocchio
2: the the stories like the original scenes in the movie.
1: No, Brian Aldiss's short stories. Oh. I, wonder, I wonder if he was thinking it's, about Pinocchio at all.
2: I guess there's no. Yeah, I have never heard about that. I I do remember reading that. Um, for the movie version, I I know Stanley Kubrick was the one to 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 had the idea to make it kind of like a Pinocchio thing. Okay. Um, and and he tasked the screenwriter. Um, the guy who gets the story credit and the movie, but I can't remember his name. I can't find it right now. He he wrote a version of the movie or a treatment or something that was kind of like more based on Pinocchio. And that's when that started. Okay. What about the third story? That's where the flesh fair comes in.
1: Yeah. In the third story, Monica has died. Oh. And it doesn't really explain why he's at the flesh fair. It's called Throwaway Town in the short story,,
2: uh, oh, okay. so I guess we can we can interpret some stuff from that from that <laughs> title,
1: <laughs> yeah I, I I think it's just assumed that Henry threw him away after Monica died
0: mm-hmm.
1: but then he eventually escapes and reconnects with Henry, and Henry takes him back in, oh, so it's kind of like a father son thing towards the end of this one instead of being about a mother and son,
2: right, yeah. Yeah, because this movie, for me, it's like the ultimate mama's boy movie. You know what I mean? It's just like, mm-hmm. it is all about that sort of like bond between childhood. I mean, obviously, anyone who watches the movie is going to come out with that. I mean, like, oh, this boy, you know, obsessed with his mother. But, yeah. um, but that's kind of what makes it so disturbing. And I think that's one of the things that made it so disturbing for, for me as a kid, you know, just like thinking of the idea of, of your parents not loving you or like your parents abandoning you, you know, like Mm -hmm. I guess at that point I wasn't really thinking of the distinction between the robot and human as much as just Mm -hmm. like, you know, he looks like a kid and he's being abandoned and it's just like heroin, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think one thing that they really changed was how much Henry was in it because Henry was in the short stories all throughout he, but he had like a separate story because he worked for a company that did like futuristic inventions. Like one of the things I think was like a genetically modified tapeworm because they they talk about people getting these things, I don't remember what they're called. They get these things implanted in them so that they can eat 100 times more food oh, wow. without gaining any weight. And they talk about it like it's alive, so I think it was supposed to be like a genetically modified tapeworm.
2: <laughs> that's so, a cool sci-fi idea
1: so he's working on all these things but I think he's like if, if this if these stories have been written today I would have said that Henry was the stand in for Elon Musk oh really because he's basically somebody who he like takes all the credit for these inventions but he's not uh, actually making them himself right but I suppose you could say that about like Henry Ford and all these other yeah, people. Yeah, like Steve you think Jobs. Of, yeah. yeah, who you think of as inventors, but they're, they're just using other people's inventions to further their own careers. Right. So I, I that's something that's been going on for centuries. So I guess it's not just <laughs> Elon Musk, of course, but I think mm-hmm. that's, that's the kind of thing that they were going with. And then towards the end of the third story, I think he kind of realizes what he's done with his life and he's alone he doesn't have his wife anymore and then he finds uh, david again goes
2: for david i guess they have a little bit of that in the in the william hurt character in the movie how huh? the, pro- the professor scientist who creates david to begin with he has a little bit of that well you know just the 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 the, ba- the backstory of him basing him on his own kid and and mm-hmm. wanting to do something like that and then obviously that's another incredibly disturbing scene for me as a kid when he goes to the when david gets to the factory and he sees all the other davids and he lashes out it's it was also very disturbing
0: Um, yeah
1: he like straight up murders one of them
2: yeah exactly
1: yeah i don't know that i feel like the henry in the story had a more human arc than professor hobby
0: (laughs) professor hobby is kind of
1: insane
0: (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah, he's not the most, uh, the most um, likable character. Or <laughs> he's, he seems rubber.
1: like he's gentle and nice, but like if you think about what he's doing, he's he's insane.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think like therapy might have been a better outlet yes. for all of that stuff. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well,
1: I guess we can probably just get into the story itself, sure. There's a narrator at the beginning that talks about some of the stuff we just talked about, the population control, and, like, the polar ice caps have melted, so the cities have flooded, Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: there's not enough resources for everyone. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So it opens, I thought it was a school at first, but I think it is Professor Hobby's office I'm not sure yeah, exactly
2: seems like it's some kind of like um brain trust or something at the and the company right that it kind of like workshops all these new things that they're creating
1: mm-hmm. yeah he's showing off his new robot like robot they have robots before this but he's invented a new one I can't remember exactly why this one is different but he uses her in disturbing ways he like stabs her hand and tells her to undress in front of them. And the thing that I liked about the scene was there's this girl off to the right looking at him like, what uh-huh. is wrong with this man? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> but the the robot here, the effect with her head opening was like amazing. This is like 2001. So... Oh, the
2: visual effects are so good in this. And it's such a great mix of practical makeup and CGI. And I think it works so yeah.
1: well. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm not somebody who hates on CGI, but, like today's CGI hardly ever looks this good. Like they, well, yeah, they spend more time making this look so realistic in this movie. And it's just it's amazing how how real this mm-hmm. whole thing looks,
2: yeah. Well, it's because they I think the fact that they weren't so confident in the CGI yet, makes them do a lot of things practically or like really work for like specific moments like this one, right? It's not a huge Mm -hmm. moment. It's just, she opens her face and and it's really cool. But like now we use CGI for almost everything. So when you have to like create whole, whole scenes that are 90% CGI, you can't put that much detail into, into, you know, just the one shot, which is great.
1: Yeah. Well, either way, this, this robot looks amazing. The effect of her head opening still I, it's mind-boggling how real it looks to me mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
2: I also always remember the one I think it was one that was in the trailer later on in the I think it's also in that flesh fair scene or like right before the the woman I think it's the nanny the robot, nanny. Yes. who does, who is like a face that's kind of floating
1: she has like a face and two ponytails and the rest is all yeah wires and metal bits
2: and that also looks very striking
1: yeah so he puts this robot away and says that he wants to build a new kind of mecha, one that can love. He wants to build a child robot. Mm-hmm.
2: Which is like a big no-no, right? Like it's like there's the whole thing. It's like they don't make mechas that are kids. Mm-hmm. Or at least we learned that later on at the Flesh Fair.
1: Yeah. And he's asked, if you can build this robot, can you even get a human to love it? And if the robot can genuinely love a human, then what responsibility does that human have to the robot? And he doesn't really answer this question.
2: No. Maybe he should have think about that for two minutes or something before making this robot, which just feels like he didn't. He just like brushes it aside.
1: Yeah. And he says something like, didn't God create Adam to love him? I'm like <laughs> what is wrong with this man?
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, he clearly he has a god complex, right? Like only someone with with that kind of thinking could say a line like that, right?
1: Yeah. I feel like if any normal human had the idea to do this, just that question alone would make them stop. <laughs> Even they would stop and think for a moment and he just didn't.
2: Yeah, well I would like to think so, although these days you never know with like yeah, the, yeah. the humanity. <laughs>
1: that's that's what I meant by the the scene at the flesh fair. It's like I could totally see these people becoming unhinged.
2: Yeah. And it is interesting. Well, yeah, I guess the the, the Professor Hobby character, he really is kind of like uh, you know, in terms of metaphor, he is like God to David, right? He's his creator, but but also he, does, he seems to be very ambivalent towards him, even when he sees him at the end, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's not that question of like, does he have to love him back, even though he created him? He kind of he loves it as an invention or as, a yeah. you know, in theory, but not as a as a person.
1: Mm-hmm. He doesn't see him as a person.
2: Yeah. Which is obviously quite different from like a Geppetto and, and Pinocchio relationship, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, definitely. So after this scene, you get a title card that says 20 months later, which I thought was so strange.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's a a weird number, yeah.
1: Why 20 months later? Why don't it just say two years later? It's close enough to two years. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It seems so oddly specific to say it was 20 months later. (laughs) And also 20 months does not seem like enough time to fully create a robot that can love you. Yeah, because that's how long it took because he's talking about making this thing and then 20 months later he's got it made
2: yeah that's kind of fast turnaround yeah. yeah I mean I don't know how hard would it be to program love into a robot seems like it should be hard right based on that discussion and that scene
1: maybe he's one of those people that kind of was working on it in secret and then this whole thing was just him
2: that's why he brushes like... the questions aside so quickly because he's like I already built this robot so I don't want to <laughs> hear
0: it
1: this i i think this this can be the head cannon now this is that's a good explanation <laughs> so you have a couple in a car monica and henry swinton and this car looks like a tron bike
2: <laughs> yeah it's a cool car i think the production design in this movie is really is really cool yeah um because it has the it, it feels very much of its time like late 90s very yes. early 2000s but also futuristic in a cool yeah. way you know it makes me think of like how when you see like retrofuturism retro from the 60s or 50s right and everything it has its own feel now we're getting to the point yeah. where we look back at 2001 and it feels like like a time as removed as that you know it has its signature it does it does <laughs> anyway they're driving in the car
1: yeah they're going to a cryogenics place they have a son who is in cryostasis, their son Martin, who is played by Jake Thomas, which I knew him from Lizzie McGuire.
2: Yeah, that's right. Me
1: too. (laughs) I remember when I watched it, I was like, that's Lizzie McGuire's little brother.
2: Which is kind of perfect because he's supposed to be a jerk later, right? Just Just like in Lizzie McGuire.
1: Yes. I hadn't seen many movies like this one, so I just thought it was so fascinating that they had this little kid from a kid's sitcom playing in this kind of adult movie as this kind of awful little boy. Mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. this is, he's a good actor.
2: Yeah, yeah, he's really good. I feel like everyone's really good in this movie. Haley Joel Osment yes. especially, I think, gives us such a great performance as David. He's very yes. eerie.
0: Yes, <laughs>
1: very. In the best way. Yeah. And I don't know if you noticed this, when they get to the cryogenics place, and the mom is reading to the son... She puts a speaker on his chamber. Do you know what the speaker was playing?
2: I know. I don't remember.
1: It was Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty Waltz.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) Which I thought was interesting because he's like in a forever sleep almost.
2: Yeah, and and it also definitely brings us to that sort of fairy tale element of the movie, yeah. right? Uh, which I also remember in that scene. I a couple of years ago, I went on my friend Lou's podcast also to talk about artificial intelligence, about AI, about mm-hmm. this movie, and, and we spent a lot of time talking about the. Do you remember in that scene? There's a mural in the back that has different fairy tales painted on it. And we spent a lot of time. That is a really long podcast. We were talking for like four hours. We really dissected this movie, and we were talking about what each of the of the paintings and the mural meant, what fairy tales were being referenced, and why, and that kind of thing. We went really deep in in, in that. <laughs> But I think that's that's all there, you know, in the mm-hmm. early scene, they're setting us up for this kind of like fantasy fairy tale element, which I do think it's what the movie is ultimately trying to do even more so than sci fi, by mm-hmm. the way that it ends, you know, when when they with David and Monica and their relationship.
1: Yeah, I think there's other fairy tales sprinkled throughout the movie. I don't know that I caught them all, but I'm pretty sure. I think she's reading him Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. I thought I saw that on the book. I haven't read like the full robin hood so i didn't recognize the passage she was reading and then later i think there's like a mobile of i i thought it was peter pan but i'm not 100 percent sure mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like in his room so there's stuff like that sprinkled throughout the movie
2: yeah and there and there's like imagery as i don't know just the idea of like the kid going alone into the woods and then going with meeting up with the uh, with the Judde Law robot Jigalow uh, Joe and going mm-hmm. on these adventures, the Dr. No sequence, you know, like it it all has that kind of like fairy tale adventure feel to it, even though it's in this very dark modern setting, you know, yeah,
1: it does, yeah. when I was watching the scene with Dr. No this time, I was like, he works kind of like an evil genie.
2: <laughs> yeah yeah it feels like going to see the genie or the the witch that's going to grant you the wishes or something you know
1: yeah like you have to be very careful with how you word things
0: mm-hmm.
2: or like a wizard of Oz sort of thing too to that as well right going and then getting mm-hmm. something that is not quite what yeah. you expected to get but it's still important i don't know yeah
1: yeah and in this scene too you have professor hobby there as well talking to an assistant about an employee with a family tragedy that could make him a candidate to test their next project. So basically, he's just using Monica and David as guinea pigs.
2: Yeah, yeah, basically. He's like, yeah, which is also terrible. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, clearly he is, like we said, unhinged and a megalomaniac and whatnot. And he's also deeply, deeply... Although I don't think we know this at this point, right, that he is deeply... Uh, affected by the death of his own son, that he's created yeah. David in, in his image. We only learned that later on, right?
1: Yeah. yeah, I think it's towards the end of the movie when that's revealed.
2: Yeah, that's. I think it's when he goes to the factory, right? That's maybe when we learned that? Or something. Yeah,
1: yeah. he you see a bunch of pictures, like family pictures, and one mm-hmm. of them is David.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So at some point after this, Henry brings David home, mm-hmm. and like we said, he's played by Hale-Joel Osmond, who is so perfect in this. He's, he's such a, he's very cute, but very creepy. And he plays it perfectly.
2: He is very creepy and he plays it perfectly. I agree with you on both counts. And that scene, especially, right? When he when he's first activated and she does the Bond thing, mm-hmm. he's especially creepy. And he's just creepy all the time when, he, when she's in the bathroom and he just opens the door. I don't yeah. know, but there's something very realistic about like, he is acting like a kid, but the mm-hmm. fact that, that, but he's just doing it in the, this off way that is deeply, deeply off-putting. And I do think that Haley Joel Osman's performance there is really, really incredible.
1: It's like the behavior version of the uncanny valley.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it really <laughs> is. But it also is not the performance a little bit on purpose, right, in a way that yes. it works, because he is, he is just a little off. And you know, this actually reminds me of, Another thing I read that Stanley Kubrick originally wanted to use an actual robot to do the movie when he was going to do it in the 90s but obviously well there was the fact that he takes so long to make movies that he said I cannot use a real boy because he's going to get so old By the time the movie's <laughs> done he's going to be like 35 so he said like let's use an actual robot and they tried it out apparently and the test footage was so creepy and so off-putting that he said I can't do it <laughs> I can't make this movie and he and he like shelved it until you know he felt like the technology would ca- catch up and then he passed it on to Spielberg and you know he went from there yeah the the
1: the movie like sort of began in the 70s so that tells you how long it took to actually become a movie right like he he optioned for the the story rights in the 70s Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until like the the mid 90s that it actually sort of got going right and then of course he passed it on to spielberg when he died Mm -hmm. so
2: i think he passed it on before He he passed it
1: on before he died, but then he died before the movie could get made.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, And there was always... I remember also at the time there being a lot of like... I feel like a little bit of annoying things about this movie. People saying like, oh, you know, like Kubrick, he would have done a better job. Or like... This movie, I remember it not having the best reception. And I feel like it's still some people think of it as like a little not so good. Or like the ending is bad. Or it's a little but I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's like mm-hmm. Spielberg's best movie in my opinion. And I love Steven Spielberg, but I do think that this one to me is so powerful and it's so gripping in so many ways. And it says so much about him and the stories that he wants to tell. And also, you know, watching The Fablements which just came out last year, you can see the, the meaningfulness of the mother-son relationship to him, right? That it's crystallized mm-hmm. in both those movies. Which also, sorry, I'm talking, I'm talking. I'll I'll throw it back to you in a second. But the other thing that this made me think of is how this is one of the rare Steven Spielberg movies that he actually wrote the screenplay for, which is very uncommon for him. And and The Fablements is also another one that he wrote, which he doesn't usually do. So I think that's interesting that for these movies about mothers and sons are some of the very few that he has actually not just directed, but written as well.
1: Mm. I haven't seen The Fablements. I... I should see that one. I d- I don't feel like I was hearing that good a review, so I never made it a priority. I figured I'd get around to it eventually.
0: Yeah,
2: I would definitely recommend. I mean, I'm a huge Spielberg fan, but I did really love that movie, so I would recommend it to anyone who was into Spielberg to check that out. Mm.
1: You you talked about it being such a gripping movie.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: was when I started watching this. It was like it was almost ten at night, and I like I have to get up pretty early in the morning for work. I was like, I'll watch half of it tonight and I'll watch half of it tomorrow night because I need to make notes and it takes a lot longer. I think I Mm -hmm. spent over five hours watching it. I did not want to stop watching it.
2: Oh wow. (laughs) Hopefully that's
1: a good thing. It is. Like I most of the time like when I'm writing notes, I kind of like it takes a long time to write notes, especially if you're trying to outline the whole movie. So I usually will do it in chunks and the fact that i sat there for five hours and then i only got like five hours of sleep (laughs) it (laughs) says that the the movie was really gripping and i i wanted to keep watching yeah so henry brings david home and monica is understandably upset that he would try to replace their son and he's going to return him but then she kind of changes her mind quicker than I would think that she would, because she has like a scene where she's kind of like grappling with the idea of him looking like a child, but he's actually a robot. And she seems kind of open to the idea of keeping him. So they decided to keep him for a while just to see what it's like. And Mm -hmm. he explains that if they do want to keep him, they have to program him to be imprinted on them. And the process is irreversible. Mm -hmm. So if they do this, he will love them forever. And if they decide not to keep him after that, he has to be returned to be destroyed mm-hmm. because he will never get over the fact that he loves them.
2: Right, which is a great for the movie, makes the movie so impactful and such, such a tragedy. Mm-hmm. But it also speaks to this man's absolutely demented way of thinking that this yes. is how this would work.
1: Why would you program this this way? <laughs> like if somebody wants to get rid of this child who may or may not have developed a soul, why would you make it so that it keeps on pining for the person that will never love them?
2: Right. Yeah, it makes absolutely no sense on a on a humanistic level, but it makes for great drama. That's for yeah. sure.
1: Yeah. But eventually David grows on her enough she he's he seems to take a liking to her, not in a I love you like a mother liking. He just he kind of likes her like a little kid. He's kind of following her around, he but he's he's doing it in a way that it's kind of endearing but also creepy.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's when he well, that's when he opens the door when she's in the bathroom. I think right that's yeah in that section.
1: Yeah, and she eventually locks him in a closet and leaves him there.
2: (laughs) Which I also think it's a very funny scene.
1: (laughs) You also have a scene in here where he's like watching them eat and he's trying to mimic them. And then he bursts out laughing, which is like borderline terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know why. There's, There's just something about the way they shot it. And I think maybe it's the fact that there's no music. Yeah, the
2: way he laughs, it's just so loud and so out of nowhere um, and so performative in a weird way. Yeah, they do it so well. It's so awkward and it's so funny and creepy at the same time.
1: Yeah, yeah. But apparently it wasn't enough to scare them off because she starts treating him like a real kid. She's basically imagining him like her own son Mm -hmm. and decides to use the imprint code. Mm -hmm. And Henry does not. She's the only one who does this, so... He imprints on her and not Henry. Right. And he immediately calls her mommy and hugs her.
2: And that's the moment when he is doomed forever, right? Like you can just tell Mm -hmm. it's going to go badly from there because it's such a uncontrollable love. And it is also the only thing that he's programmed to do really is to... um, Is to love her. It's kind of like that movie Megan that just came out, you know, but like in a different way. It's just like the classic robot thing of like you're programmed. In that movie, she's programmed to protect this girl, so that she ends up like hurting other people and kill even killing them to protect this girl, you know. Like whereas here is that thing of like you're just project. He loves her, and that's the only thing on his mind all the time, and it is so. In a way, it's re- it's relatable because I feel like we all go through a little bit of that, and definitely everybody wants love, and they w- and everybody needs a certain kind of attention and to connect with someone, right? And the and the sort of like, but taking that to the extreme where it's just it's never enough, and you just need more and more. It's so so disturbing to me in this movie, and it's also so touching.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, after he's been imprinted, Monica and Henry are. Going out. I think it's supposed to be like a date night. And she's raving about all of David's quirks and how she loves him. But now Henry thinks he's creepy. Right. Then you have a scene where he appears and he's apparently just dumped all of her perfume all over himself. Right. And she's upset. And then he, out of nowhere, asks, Mommy, will you die?
0: <laughs>
1: Which <laughs> I hope, I, like, what made him think of this? <laughs> and then you have a conversation between them. She's telling him that, yes, she will eventually. And he's like, I'll be alone. And she tries to assure him that she'll live at least 50 years. And then he's like whispering, I love you, mommy. I hope you never die.
2: (laughs) Which is also, well, I mean, it's incredibly sad and also incredibly creepy. You know, (laughs) like like everything in this movie, it's just that mix between Sadness and creepiness and just like, yeah, yeah. That's what makes it get so under my skin. Like there's something about this movie that as much as I love it, it's hard for me to watch it just because it like gets at this stuff that it's so poignant, but so uncomfortable also. I
1: I think I feel about the same way because like, there's so much of this movie that if it was any other movie, I wouldn't like it because I don't really like sad things. Mm-hmm. I I don't watch very many creepy movies. I don't really like creepy things.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But
1: there's something about this movie that I love. I don't really understand why.
2: <laughs> right. It just gets at something that is so, I think it's so within us and that we understand so well because we've all been children. We've all like had a relationship to, to a mm-hmm. mother. And even if you don't have a mother, you know about like if you're an orphan you have a relationship to the absence of a mother so like it works for everybody kind of
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah so at this point henry's calling up to her telling her that they're becoming unreasonably unfashionably late so she goes to her closet and gets out a box containing a toy that belonged to her son and this toy is teddy
0: mm-hmm. and she
1: tells him that teddy is a super toy and she knows that they'll take good care of each other yeah and then t- Teddy glares at her and insists he is not a toy. <laughs> <laughs> I love Teddy.
2: <laughs> Teddy's great, and he is also a great effect. I think also a mix probably of robot and CGI, right?
1: That's kind of what I was thinking because he's definitely a practical effect at some points because they interact with him way too much for him to be right. totally CGI. Yeah, but it's such a good effect that you totally believe that this bear is alive. Yeah. And then once she's gone, he asks Teddy if 50 years is a long time. And he says, I don't think so.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, for them, it's not going to be a long time. We see that at the end of the movie, right? Just like for someone who's going to live forever.
1: Yeah. And then the next day you have this kind of disturbing scene where Henry calls and David is like interfacing with the phone and making it look like Henry is speaking through David and Oh, this is another scene where it's like, he is such a good actor because he pulls this off so well. It's so creepy.
2: Yeah, it, it is really something else to see how he can be so creepy. And the, and yet you have this understanding for him because he's an innocent, you know, so you are kind of like, mm-hmm. you feel a certain kind of tenderness, a certain kind of pity, even though he's so, so creepy all the
0: time. Mm
1: hmm. So this phone call was to tell Monica that their son has woken up. And when he gets home, David just looks disturbed that he's there. Mm -hmm. He eventually gets better enough to start walking. He has some kind of futuristic cyber device strapped to his legs to help him walk around. And like the first thing that he does is try to make Teddy choose between him and David. Right. It's like this kid is... I I hesitate to call him evil because he does have some good qualities, but like, that's that's the first thing you're going to (laughs) do. That's wrong.
2: It's like, it's a very exaggerated movie version of, of getting a little sibling, you know, like that kind of like jealousy of the younger child that has just born. What's interesting though, is that it goes both ways, right? Because both Martin and David feel that way about each other, that they, that they are the, original mm-hmm. kid and now there's this other kid so what's going on
1: yeah that's true but i i loved teddy's reaction to this he's he just looks at them very disturbed like he doesn't know what to do and then he runs after Monica, calling mommy mommy yeah <laughs> <laughs> and she picks him up and takes her with him and she says were they torturing you teddy <laughs> <laughs> so martin tells david that teddy used to be a super toy but now he's old and stupid you want him so now he belongs to david
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then martin says that david is the new super toy and wonders what kind of powers he has and he's listing all these things that he wonders if he can do like flying and walking in the ceiling and david asks martin if he can do any of that And Martin looks at him like he's crazy and says, no, because I'm real. Mm -hmm. And then he's trying to make him break a toy, but he refuses. And then he's making him do things and he's like feeling him and he's asking him why he's not cute like a normal doll. He just looks like somebody's ordinary kid. Like he's trying to figure him out.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But I guess that's a realistic reaction because like if somebody showed up and somebody told you they were a robot... You would try and figure out what was going on there, too.
2: Yeah, and to him, he's supposed to be a toy of some kind, right? Like, if what's going on? It's just such a... Also, because there is not a robot quite like him in this world. He's the only one. So it's a very unique uh, thing to be confronted with.
1: hmm And he asks him when his birthday is, but he doesn't remember. And he asked him when he was built, but he doesn't remember. And he asked him what the first thing that he remembers is he said it's the bird with big wings so we asked him to draw it and he's drawing it and and martin says it looks like a peacock but it looks nothing like a peacock it's actually the logo for the business that he was built at the cybertronics lab
2: yeah yeah i think he more means it looks like the npc logo i think he was supposed to try to say more than a peacock or something you know well although, although oh, it, maybe. it's not, it's not quite like that it's it's a little it bit a, it more it has a human sticking
1: up out of it too
2: right that's true yeah it, it it has its own kind of like design to it but um mm-hmm. yeah it's kind of almost like a phoenix or something it's yeah i don't know
1: and later you have a scene where he brings monica a book to read to them and he has this look on his face <laughs> it's very mischievous and she looks happy to read them a story but then she has this sudden realization and she's like looking at the book, and then at David, and then back to the book, and then at Martin. (laughs) And he says, (laughs) David's going to love it. (laughs) Right. And it's Pinocchio.
2: Yeah, which is a... Yeah, which is our... I think it's the first explicit mention of Pinocchio in the movie, right? I think so. Right, and obviously makes that comparison very obvious that the movie's inspired by Pinocchio. and, um, And it is an interesting... Uh, adaptation of Pinocchio because, I mean, I haven't read the Pinocchio story since I was a kid, but I remember as a kid not quite getting it because there was this weird mix in it between anarchy and uh, moralizing and and I just couldn't understand, like I couldn't get the message, you know, the Disney movie, for example, is much more clear and palatable mm-hmm. about what it's trying to say and about its warmthness, you know, its warmth, and uh, and it's obviously very scary for a kid. There's like all these terrifying scenes at, at the you know Pleasure Island and the the whale and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. but I could follow that. Whereas the book, I didn't, I couldn't quite make sense of it. And I feel like I feel similarly about AI in that way. It's a very loose adaptation, but it's very, it feels um, spiritually. Accurate in in giving me that sense of like I don't I don't know quite what to make of this. This is like creepy and sad at the same time and tender, but also disturbing. So so that I really appreciate.
1: Mm-hmm. Most versions of Pinocchio don't adapt the book very faithfully.
0: Mm-hmm. Like
1: it's been probably decades since I've read Pinocchio, so. I I probably should read that at some point since I'm doing a whole series on it. But I I do know that Pinocchio was not a very nice character in the book.
2: Yeah, he's kind of a jerk.
1: Yeah. He's more like Martin than David. (laughs) He is, actually, yes. So most versions, I think they draw more on the Disney version than they do from the book. Because the Disney version really cleaned up what Pinocchio is. They made him a very cute, sort of naive, misunderstood, trying-to-behave little boy instead of just Mm -hmm. um, a little brat.
2: (laughs) Yeah, which works great for that movie. I mean, I think it's a a brilliant movie, but um, I mean, the the Disney original, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But... um, but yeah, but most adaptations that have come since kind of like want to, I mean, you'll be the one to tell me because you're going to make do the series, but I feel like most of them go in that direction. Um, except maybe if, I wonder if some of the Italian adaptations maybe try to go back to the source material a little more.
1: I haven't gotten to anything from Italy yet. I, I probably should do at least one before I finish. Like, because I'm probably not going to do, well, I, I mean, I cannot do every adaptation right now because right. there are so many versions of Pinocchio. <laughs> but I eventually will do at least... There's like one specific Italian one that I'm thinking of that I probably should try and do before mm-hmm. I finish up this series. Yeah. So it will be interesting to see how they interpret it compared to how Americans have interpreted it.
2: Yeah, and the latest version by Guillermo del Toro, that also is very loosely... It, it goes in its own direction and it's, it's very loosely based on the story.
1: Yes, I will say that he is a little bit more... I don't want to call him a bad kid cuz he is not a bad kid. He's he's still kind of naive but he's more mischievous than the Disney Pinocchio.
2: That is true. That's definitely true, yeah.
1: But yeah, every version seems to like just do their own thing. Like there's I think there's a version called like Pinocchio in Outer Space from like the 70s or something. <laughs> so <laughs> That sounds fun. Every every version just kind of does their own thing. It's like they take the basic idea of Pinocchio and some of the characters, and then just run with it in their own direction. Mm-hmm. Over time, she reads them through all the way through Pinocchio, and this is where he learns about the blue fairy. And he latches onto the part where the blue fairy makes Pinocchio a real boy. Right. Which that becomes one of his driving forces later on.
2: Yeah. That's the second moment that seals his doom, you know, mm-hmm. that dooms him into his yeah. fate. Yeah,
1: I never thought about it like that. But yeah, it is. Then you get a scene that is—I don't know if I—I don't know if it's right to call this scene iconic, but it's one that I always think of when I think of AI. When David is watching Martin eat, and
0: oh, Martin yeah.
1: is showing him chewed-up food, and David wants to try eating, and Teddy tries to stop him, telling him he'll break, but he doesn't listen. Mm-hmm. and he's like stuffing his face full of spinach and he breaks very disturbingly his like his face like sags yeah. off of his robot frame which my question is why did they build him so that this is something that can happen <laughs> like it <Yeah. laughs> if they give him the driving forces of a child a child is going to try things why not build in some safeguards in case this robot child tries to eat because he somehow has the mechanics enough to swallow because he has to be opened up and cleaned out. Right. So (laughs) this seems like a design flaw to me.
2: Yeah. Yeah, he really seems to be designed to be as creepy as possible. It's the main criteria, I think, that they were going for <laughs> it at this yes. factory. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but I do agree with you that this is kind of an iconic scene. At least it's all, it's one that I also think about a lot when, when I remember the movie. Because just the, the way that his face uh, changes, like you were saying, how it, it droops and, and sacks off when he breaks is really, really memorable. And it mm-hmm. sticks with you. It
1: also... I didn't think of it at the time, but I'm like, you also have a scene later where he literally gets completely submerged in water, so why didn't that hurt him? And the spinach did. You'd think the spinach would be less damaging to a robot than literally being completely yeah. submerged in a pool.
2: Yeah. The pool doesn't, yeah, I guess the pool doesn't really have much of an effect on him. It's more about what he was doing there that it gets him in trouble. Mm-hmm. Is that the next scene? It It's coming up
1: right it it's soon the next scene is martin telling david that he has a special mission for him and if he does it he'll tell mommy that he loves david and that will make mommy love david also uh-huh. and he wants a lack of monica's hair and he tells oh, him that they'll share it
0: right.
1: but he insists that it's a secret he has to do it while she's asleep yeah and at first he refuses but martin figures out a way to trick him into doing it anyway And this is the point where he, like, for the most part, most of his behavior is sort of normal sibling rivalry stuff, but this one seemed to go an extra step into mildly psychotic. Like, he's planning to freak Monica out so much that she'll get rid of David.
2: Right. Yeah. And, And this is definitely the moment that if you are, if I am Henry, the husband, this is the moment when I start to feel we are in a horror movie, like this robot yeah. is Chucky, it's Megan, we need to get it out of this house now.
1: Yeah, as as much as you feel for David, his Henry's response is understandable. Yeah. When he goes in to cut her hair, Henry freaks out, he's shaking him, but Monica stops him and she's like, later she's just defending him, saying they were just being competitive little boys and henry asks her if david was created to love then it's reasonable to assume he can hate and if he's pushed to extremes they need to ask themselves what he's really capable of which i mean it's an understandable worry
2: and it is and it is somewhat uh answered in the movie because you know there's the scene at the pool which i'm pretty sure is one of the ones that's come in- up now, but then later on when he, like we were talking about, when he sees the other Davids and he lashes yeah. out, he is capable of a certain amount of violence. And especially, well, the movie seems to say, particularly because of his one track mind towards his mission to, for, to love Monica, mm-hmm. he, that seems to be the thing that fuels the moments that, in which he lashes out in hatred and in, in violence. So mm-hmm. he's not wrong, Henry, you know?
1: Yeah. So the next scene is the pool party. David brings Martin a present, and another little boy asks if this is his little brother. And Martin says, technically, no. (laughs) I loved his delivery of that line. Technically, no. (laughs) And then all the other kids start ganging up on David. And to Martin's credit here, he does defend him a little bit. And one of the kids asks if he has... DOS, which means Damage Avoidance System, and he tests it by trying to stab him with a cake server, and David does feel pain, and he runs to Martin to protect him from the bully, but ends up accidentally pulling Martin into the pool. He does not mean to do it at this point. It's an accident, but that's enough for Henry and Monica. They interpret this as David trying to kill Martin and decide that enough is enough.
2: Yeah, and this is this is one of those, I mean, at this point, it's clear that 20 months was not enough time to develop this robot properly. <laughs> yes. It's just too many flaws.
1: <laughs> yes. So Monica tells David that she needs to talk to him, but she finds a pile of letters that he's written to her talking about how much he loves her and insisting that he's real. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't have the heart to tell him what she was going to tell him. So she just asked if he'd like to go for a drive tomorrow.
2: Yeah. And this scene is another one that I think about a lot. And it's one of the most, to for me, harrowing scenes in the movie with all the messages and the drawings and particularly the one that you were mentioning before when he says, which I was interested to hear that it comes from the original source material with the thing of like, you know, I love you and I am real and Teddy's not real and I hate Teddy. and And that moment... I thought was so, there is something so real about that moment of this robot arguing for his life and throwing the other robot under the bus to say like, I am different. He is the robot. I am something else, you know, like choose me. Uh, I am a real boy. And there's just something about that, that I find so, so tragic. And so like, it really hits me that scene. And I think it's a great, great scene. One of the most memorable for me.
1: It's also kind of a very human response to throw somebody else under the bus to save their own skin.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, in that way, it also is arguing for the question of like, is David actually alive? You know, like, and does he have Mm -hmm. a soul, like you were asking before? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So she takes David and Teddy for a drive. They're headed towards Cybertronics and she's crying, and he asks her if her tears are happy tears. But. Mm -hmm. So here she has a change of heart, and she knows that if she takes him back to Cybertronics, he will be destroyed. So she turns off the road into the woods, and tells him that she has to leave him there. And at first, he thinks he's that this is a game, but she tries to explain that if they go back, he's going to be destroyed, and he doesn't really understand. And then when he realizes what's happening, he's like begging her not to leave. He's apologizing for. Everything he's ever done. He's Mm -hmm. asking if Pinocchio can become a real boy, then can he become a real boy and come back to live with her? And she tells him it's just a story and stories aren't real. But he's insisting he won't let go. She puts money in his pocket and tells him not to let anyone catch him. She tells him that he needs to avoid flesh fairs and all humans. Only mechas are safe for him. And he still won't Mm -hmm. let go of her. So she ends up having to shove him down. And she tells him that she's sorry she didn't tell him about the world. And then she jumps in her car and drives off and leaves him alone mm-hmm. in the woods.
2: Yeah. Like I said, this is probably next to the flesh fair. The other scene that disturbed me deeply, deeply as a kid watching the movie the first time that I, that was so, yeah, there's just something about seeing that abandonment that is so guttural, especially when you're a kid watching it, obviously.
1: Yeah. No, I I can see why this would be more disturbing for a kid than for an adult. Because like yeah. for a kid this would be a kid being abandoned by his parents so
2: yeah and it's one of your biggest fears as a kid like it's just yeah it's 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 a it really this to me feels like a horror movie in a lot of ways and especially as a kid and especially that scene
1: yeah i can totally see that this would be a horror movie for a kid Mm -hmm. are you enjoying this episode of the podcast do you want more content for me and my friends on the iHeart movies podcast network we have exclusive bonus episodes, extended episodes, preview content, and more waiting for you right now on Patreon. Patrons also get the chance to request episodes, so if you want me to cover something I've never done before, sign up and let me know. So from here, the story pretty much turns into a completely different story. The first half was him living with Henry and Monica, and they're gone at this point we're now in the robot world here we meet mm-hmm. gigolo joe the lover robot played by jude law
2: mm-hmm. and, and another great performance in this movie
1: yeah he's he's kind of creepy in a different way but he's also endearing
2: yeah yeah
1: <laughs> so i'm I'm not sure what all he has but he has some kind of a necklace that i assume tells him where he needs to go for each job right and then he gets a key to a hotel where he's supposed to meet someone, and the desk clerk tells him that when he leaves, to make sure he's d- displaying his operating license, which is this glowing panel on his chest. And they, they don't hmm. really explain much about like how he operates and like what he needs this license for. You just kind of you just kind of are thrown into this world. And you have to like figure it out for yourself
0: yeah
2: yeah, which I kind of like if I if I'm being honest, it's nice to see i I love movies that kind of like create a whole world and they they just explain what is absolutely necessary to know and everything else is just more about it's just more to get the feeling that this world exists more so than you have to understand what's going on,
1: yeah, I kind of like that too because some movies can get into that place where it's like they just tell you too much and it's just exposition over everything, yeah so. I do kind of like that you don't really know everything about this world. You just kind of see bits and pieces here as are relevant to the story. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And this hotel clerk also warns him about a flesh fair with hounds out hunting for strays, Right. which flesh fair was mentioned earlier by Monica too. So, you know, that's going to be important. Mm -hmm. So Joe goes up to the room, but he finds his client dead. And her murderer is still there. And I guess he thinks that he's going to be blamed for this. I'm not sure exactly why this is his go-to assumption, but maybe maybe it's just because people are biased against robots to begin with.
0: Yeah,
2: and it does feel like he has been called there to be framed. At least to me, it did. It does,
1: but I still don't know why he's automatically just knows that he has no other choice but to completely give up his life. Like he leaves and he cuts his operating license out of his chest
2: that's true yeah he just knows but it's a scene that feels very much like a film noir or something like that right like the guy Mm, gets mistaken and he just or the fugitive or something like that he just knows he has to escape
1: yeah so you go back to david and teddy here and david tells teddy that he's going to try to be a real boy so that monica will love him again and he tells him that the blue fairy made Pinocchio into a real boy. So if he can find her, then she can make him into a real boy.
2: Right. And that and thus begins their quest to find the blue fairy.
1: Mhm. And as they're talking, this huge dump truck thing pulls up and unloads a pile of scraps, robot parts, and I don't know where they were hiding, but like robots emerge from all over the woods. They just like come out of everywhere. And they start foraging around in these new robot bits, and using them to fix themselves. And there's a lot of really creepy, amazing special effects in this. Like it's, it's so well done. I think part of it helps that it's at night, so it's hard to see everything. But it's still,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's it's really well done.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. That whole section, this, and then I think the it comes right after. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, it's this very great set piece sequence that also one of the most memorable in the movies. I mean, I already mentioned how it traumatized me as a kid, but, um, but yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's fantastic. And that, yeah, setting it in the night is good. It's kind of that Jurassic park trick, you know, with the T-Rex in the rain that looks so good all these years later, because they knew the limitations and worked around them.
1: Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure exactly why in the next scene here, you have the moon rising over the hill, As Joe comes over the hill, and I'm not sure why this these robot hunters have made their hot air balloon look like the moon, but I kind of love it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's very theatrical, and you know, it's a lot of they have style these (laughs) these these guys. (laughs)
1: Yes. So one of the robots in this, I I I don't want to call it a feeding frenzy because they're not eating, but (laughs) it's basically the robots are kind of in. They're in a panic and trying to get out of here as fast as they can because they're going to be caught. And he tells them about the flash fair that they, they destroy robots on stage. And mm-hmm. Teddy tells them they need to run now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And these hunters in the hot air balloon target Joe specifically. And then they send out these bikers, which I'm assuming are the hounds that the hotel guy talked about because the bikes right. sort of look like dog faces.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's the impression I get too.
1: So. A bunch of the robots all hide together in a cabin, and one of them asks David if he needs somebody to take care of him. This is the nanny robot, and she tells him she has many good references, and they're all captured in a net and hauled away in the balloon, and somewhere along the line, David drops Teddy, and he's following them from the ground, and then he is mistaken for a toy at the flesh fair and taken to a lost and found, while everyone else is put into cages. Mm -hmm. And Yeah, like I said, the flesh fair is the robots are destroyed. But basically, all these people are here because they hate robots so much that they just love watching them get ripped to pieces. Right. Which I I could totally see this happening if robots became a real thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a yeah that makes total sense. I mean, we already have this demolition derby exists. Obviously, it's not the same thing at all, Mm -hmm. but you know um the impulse there's something similar about that that impulse to see some kind of like destruction and you know i can't see that because you know i love watching action movies and that kind of thing and the in there's just things that want to be sublimated somehow you mix that with this hatred of the robots and then you you know you're there
1: yeah it's kind of like a futuristic coliseum almost
2: yeah it's exactly like that i would say Um, that's a great yeah it's a great comparison if a coliseum was just about like the torture and the well it kind of was right i mean uh, you know yeah i think that's yeah. actually a really good comparison yeah
1: you also get a cameo from chris rock in this scene which is such a strange cameo for this movie i don't i don't know why chris rock specifically needed to be this character but it is- i mean
2: it is it's particularly memorable. yeah it's particularly memorable because the robot looks like him also it's not just his voice but it's mm-hmm. like a robot it's like a comedy robot that they make look like him um mm-hmm. and he is i think he gets ripped apart right like maybe like his legs and he's he's
1: put into a cannon and shot through a flaming hoop then oh, that's through a right. propeller. so that's he's right. like burned up and chopped up at the same time yeah and his face hits the cage in front of david
2: yeah which is absolutely terrifying that's Mm -hmm. one of the things that really got to me as a kid as well
1: yeah i could see that yeah and this of course freaks out david and he instinctually grabs the hand of the person next to him which turns out to be joe
2: Mm -hmm. again the what they set up at the pool with the with the fire fight response right
1: yeah yeah because he's asking him to protect him Mm -hmm. and meanwhile teddy has escaped and he's running through the fair and you have, again. This is why this feels so real to me because you have this crazed voice screaming about the flesh fair being a celebration of life and a commitment to a true human future. And it's like I yeah. can totally see this happening. This is that there are yeah. enough crazed people that want things to be a certain way mm-hmm. that I could see them totally becoming. I don't, is anarchic the the right word? I don't know. Just this, a violent mob but organized.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you that's so easy to see. I mean, you see how everything gets politicized these days in a way that mm-hmm. it's kind of like a us versus them sort of way, which I would yes. not. That feels very much like that. Feel maybe not quite in this way, but I feel like AI is already kind of like. That meaning AI in our real lives, I could see it at some point becoming this thing that it starts to be like these people are pro it and these people are against it, and you know, like
1: mm-hmm. it's,
2: yeah, it, that feels very real.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can see that online with the discussion about AI, even just like AI art.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So far, it hasn't like quite positioned itself in like a you know Republican Democrat divide or a conservative liberal divide. Just yet, but I can see that happening. They'll figure out a way to to shove
1: it in those boxes.
0: They will figure out a way. Yeah,
1: I don't know which way it'll go, but they'll figure it out. Yeah. But Teddy almost makes it to David, and he's picked up by this little girl. And I'm like, I'm disturbed, but not surprised that a parent would bring a small child to a place like
2: this. Right.
1: And the the parent in question is somebody who works at the flash fair. So this little girl goes to tell him that there's a boy in the cage and he doesn't believe her, but he goes to see anyway and confirms with this scanning machine that yes, this is an actual robot, but it's impossible because nobody makes children.
0: Yeah.
2: And he is kind of disgusted by that, right? Like, cause he's obviously a, uh... Isn't he, or that's Brendan Gleeson, but I don't think, I think he comes in later, right? That he's like, cannot believe that they would do such a thing, because he's like a yeah, robot well, the, guy.
1: The, that's another thing where it feels like something that would actually happen, because this guy, he wants to take him out and free him, because he's he's so convinced that it's, I mean, he knows it's not real, but it's so real that he doesn't want the kid to be chopped up or exploded or melted or whatever.
2: Yeah, like that's too far, that's going too far.
1: Yeah. So he wants to free him, but the main guy, the robot, I, in my head, I was likening him to, have you ever seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang?
2: You know, I haven't.
1: There's a character called the child snatcher. So I was calling this guy the robot snatcher.
2: Right, right, right. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's it's not, not exactly the same character, but in my head, this guy was like the robot version of the child snatcher.
2: Right.
1: (laughs) But this guy, he really hates robots and the, dad doesn't want to destroy david but he tells him that he's giving him a refund and he hauls him away and he brings him up in front of the crowd he wants to i don't know do the most gruesome thing to him i think he has acid for him because he's talking i think he's telling him not to melt him Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. or
1: burn him he's saying don't burn me but he's giving this grand speech about how they're now trying to replace your children with machines yeah but when david starts pleading don't burn me i think he also yells that he's not pinocchio too There was a i know there was a pinocchio reference in here somewhere
0: Uh Uh
1: but a woman in the crowd shouts that mecca don't plead for their lives and demands to know who he is and he he's trying to tell the crowd that it's a trick and then he, I don't know what he was getting. But he like weirdly quotes Jesus, and he tells the crowd, "He who is without sin, cast the first stone." And I'm not sure why, like what what he was trying to gain by that. It doesn't work
2: because yeah, it's a weird thing to him. quote at that moment.
1: Yeah, it doesn't even fit. <laughs> it's yeah. It was a strange quote. He's losing the crowd in that moment for sure. <laughs> yeah, they're all throwing things at him, and they rush the stage, and in the melee David and Joe are able to escape
0: mm-hmm.
1: oh I guess this is I'm looking at my notes this is where you have the scene where you it's revealed that David was a real child because you have you cut to the professor after they escape and there's the pan oh. shot of the photographs that end on a picture of David which says in loving memory mm, okay and this is where one of his assistants comes in to say they found David at a flesh fair and he's alive in one piece but he's run off
2: right because he must have been expecting him to be dropped off to for destruction right yeah Mm -hmm.
1: so David Teddy and Joe are walking through the woods and Joe asks where he came from and David tells him about his family and about the Blue Fairy that he needs to find her so so that she can make him into a real boy so that his mommy will love him
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and then the, the Joe like, I, lo- I like Joe, but he has some weird lines considering he's talking to a child. And I know he's not a real child, but Joe gets a little too creepy <laughs> in some cases. Like, <laughs> this, this whole thing where he asks if the Blue Fairy is Mecha, Orga, man, or woman, and David says that she is a woman, and then he's, like, going on about how he knows women, and it's, like, borderline uncomfortable considering he's talking to a child. Yeah. It's like, he doesn't go too specific, but it's, like... You would think that he would be programmed to not talk like this in front of a child
2: (laughs) i don't know there's yeah i mean it is it kind of fits in the fact that he's programmed to see everything through that lens right of what he's been programmed to do and also with the idea that there's no kid mechas so like as long as maybe that's why he's just like not programmed to
1: i suppose because he wouldn't view david as a child he would view him as another robot
2: and he would probably also interact with very few children, if at all, as in yeah. his whole life as a robot, right?
1: Yeah. But he tells David that he knows women can always be found in Rouge City, but it's too far to make it on foot. And the journey will not be without peril. He's very theatrical, the way he talks, which is yeah. another thing I like about him.
2: And he moves and dances kind of like a Fred Astaire kind of a thing. And he has, yeah, yeah. he's got a lot of flair. <laughs> The idea of this like you know sexy robot it's kind of funny
1: mm-hmm. and david wonders how they will find a specific woman and joe says we will ask dr no there's nothing he doesn't which i love that line
2: yeah it's <laughs> yeah that's very good
1: they eventually get a ride to rouge city by bribing some teenage boys with promises of a woman like him and the the entrance to rouge city is like these tunnels That are creepy and weird but i i still like the visual they like drive into their mouths yeah Uh, it's it's one of those things where it's like equally creepy and cool
2: at the same time that to me feels very pinocchio influenced you know like the whole rouge cities feels like pleasure island sort of situation Oh, it
1: does
2: and the driving through the mouth feels like driving through the whale's mouth you know like kind of like so i feel like in that area there's a lot of that
1: It kind of is like the adult version of Pleasure Island, like all the the sins, but adult sins instead of child sins.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I didn't even think of that, but that is really a good Pinocchio reference. (laughs) (laughs) So they get into the city and David finds a church with a statue of Mary, which I think he's thinking that it looks like the Blue Fairy. Right. He has a good line here because he says that the church is Our Lady of the Immaculate Heart, the ones who made us are always looking for the ones who made them. They go in, fold their hands, look around their feet, sing songs, and when they come out it's usually me that they find.
2: Yeah, that's another <laughs> great line. And it's also very it feels also very right that in the middle of this pleasure island, like den of sin, there's a church for everybody who yeah. feels bad about committing all these <laughs> sins.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean there's so much that feels too realistic.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) From here, they head to Dr. No, played by Robin Williams. And I don't know that it was like intentionally trying to make him feel like a genie because like he's not the same as his genie character in Aladdin. But just the way he behaves feels like the genies in old stories where they're not good, like they're like an evil genie. Like they try and trick you into wishing for something you didn't want.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. It's that kind of thing of like, oh, you said this, but you know, I interpreted what you said very literally in a way that mm-hmm. obviously you didn't mean. It gives him that sense also of like a uh, slot machine or like a Vegas sort of thing of like that they're trying to to get you to spend more money, you know, like, because you have to put yeah. in a coin or something to like get, answer your question. So they want to trick you on purpose.
1: Yeah. I didn't think of him as a slot machine, but it's true because you have to pay for the for the answers. So the more tricky he is with what he says, the more money you have to pay. Yeah. The the people who design slot machines, I think, are evil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and this is really like a futuristic genie version of a slot machine. It is. I didn't I didn't think of it that way, but it's that's so true. Hmm. So David finally figures out a way to ask his question that results in an answer, and the answer he gets is more of a riddle than an actual answer, but he's told to find the Blue Fairy, he needs to go to the end of the world where the lions weep, and it cites the source of this answer as a book written by Professor Alan Hobby, and he writes of the power to transform Mecca into Orga.
2: That's... Yeah, I had forgotten about that, but that makes him even worse, Dr. Hobby. Like, it makes me more angry at him.
1: Uh, Well, you kind of, you find out later that he kind of programmed Dr. No. Like, I want want to know how much he knew about David's journey.
2: Yeah, that he wanted to send him that way.
1: Like, how much was he following him and directing his every move? Because he wouldn't have found him without Dr. No and he programmed Dr. No to send him in his direction it's like mm-hmm. he, th- this guy is he's he has to be evil at the, at
2: the, the well he is evil but he's also god right like in terms of the movies or for david you know yeah, because he's I, yeah. I guess that's how the movie gets away with it it's like because he's david's creator he can decide whatever he wants for him yeah it's it's
1: he's so I don't know. He's just... He's hes a terrible person.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, apparently Joe knows what this riddle means, and he tells him that many a Mecca has gone to the end of the world and never returned. And I don't get this because... And he says, and that is why they call the end of the world Manhattan. Like, is there a pun there that I'm not getting? <laughs> I, I, I don't understand that line.
2: Yeah, me either
1: manhattan yeah i don't
2: get it maybe just because the idea of man i don't know i i yeah i don't know well what he, the he emphasizes
1: man but hatton also right. like i i don't get it that's why i thought maybe there's a pun i'm not understanding but yeah, yeah i don't know i
2: guess my best guess is that it's because of the man thing of like it's just for orgas you know not mechas i could but be it's a little it's a little weak though in terms of writing yeah i, think I gotta say
1: That's the best explanation I've heard so far, so I think we'll go with that. (laughs) (laughs) So David wants to leave for Manhattan immediately, but Joe asks him, what if the Blue Fairy isn't even real? What if she's magic and only humans believe in the supernatural? That's what separates us from them. And he asks, what if she's actually an electronic parasite created to haunt the Mecca? And he tells him that humans hate us. They will stop at nothing. And David says... My mommy doesn't hate me because I'm special and unique. And when I'm real, she'll love me and hug me every day.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And he tells him, Your mother loves you the way my customers love me. They love what we do for them. She does not love you. She can't love you. You were designed and built specific like the rest of us. And you are alone because they tired of you and they wanted a younger model. We're suffering for the mistakes they made because when the end comes, all that will be left is us. And that's why they hate us. And that's why you have to stay here with me. Yeah. And he says goodbye, Joe, and leaves.
2: It that is such a Again, there's that's so much in that in that section that you've quoted, and again another example of that how David feels himself different from the other meccas, right? Like I was saying with that whole thing of like throwing Teddy under the bus, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And now here he really separates himself from Joe, and Joe obviously has just been wronged by a human, and his whole life is in ruins. So obviously he's very bitter at the moment. Mm-hmm. I would say with humanity, but but he's not. I mean, the movie, he speaks basically a lot of the things that the movie is trying to say about this relationship between Mechas and humans, and the world, and David and his mommy, and you know, which this becomes even more obvious towards the end of the movie, he's kind of that missing link between robots and humans.
0: Hmm. Yeah.
2: But we can talk about that later on when we get to the ending of like how, what I mean by that, I guess.
1: Yeah. So outside, Joe immediately gets arrested, and he gets put into an amphibicopter. Like, it looks like a helicopter, but it can go underwater, so they call them amphibicopters. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's two of them. So David goes and jumps in the other one and takes off.
2: So David basically drives the amphibicopter to Manhattan, right?
1: Well, he first he knocks over the other helicopter. Joe falls out, and then gets up and runs after David. So they both go to Manhattan together.
2: That's right, that's right.
1: And this is where you find out that Manhattan is completely underwater. The sea levels have risen up, and basically it's just buildings sticking up out of the water. And You also see the Statue Mm -hmm. of Liberty's torch sticking up out of Mm -hmm. the water.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So they're flying around looking at all the wreckage, and they find the weeping lions... Which are these big statues? I kind of thought they were going to go for the lions, like that are on that library.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: but they're different. They're huge,
2: and it is basically where the headquarters of this this company that Hobby runs are, right? Or like, yeah, I mean, I, that's kind of like not quite clear to me. Is this like older headquarters that are no longer in use because it's everything's underwater? Do they just keep. Commuting to Manhattan to work, even though it's underwater. Honestly, that wouldn't surprise me.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure because inside it looks well kept. So mm-hmm. maybe they've just retrofitted an abandoned building. I don't know.
2: It's like the the whatever the equivalent to like going into an old warehouse and using it as the headquarters for your tech company. They just go to an old Manhattan building that is halfway underwater.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's probably about what happened. I would say that there wouldn't be anybody around to sell them, but I bet if that ever happened, people would still find a way to sell sell space uh, in the buildings.
2: <laughs> real estate in Manhattan, they will push that until the end of days.
1: <laughs> so yeah, there's a landing area near the Lions, and they get out of the amphibicopter and start looking for Professor Hobby, and he goes in And there's a chair facing away from them. And you don't even see a person, but I guess he just assumes somebody is sitting there. So he walks up and asks if this is the place that can make you real. Mm -hmm. And then the chair swivels around to reveal another David.
2: Of course. And yeah, another iconic scene of the movie, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. David faces himself, basically. Yes. So our
1: David is very disturbed by the other David and he starts whispering to him that he can't have her and then he's yelling that he's david he's special he's unique he can't have her and then he just murders the other david he bashes him to pieces with a lamp
2: yeah it's like even more extreme version of the martin david rivalry right now he has to face himself and and also that he it is going against the whole thing that he's going with that he's not a robot that he's unique that he's different Mm -hmm. you know Yeah. Very existential, obviously, this whole section.
1: Yes. And at this point, Joe runs away, which I think I might too. Yeah. (laughs) and Professor Hobby comes in, and he tells him that he'd heard about the Blue Fairy from Monica, and he wonders what he wanted her to do for him. And of course, he tells him he wants her to make him a real boy. And he says, but you are a real boy, or at least as real as I've ever made one, which by all accounts would make me your Blue Fairy. And he says, you're not her. Dr. No told me she would be here. Dr. No told you what we needed you to know to get you back to me. Mm -hmm. So he basically has just been guiding him to this point. Right. And he tells him that before he was born, robots didn't dream or desire unless we told them what to want. And he tells him that he's a success story because he made his own journey. And he came up with the story of the Blue Fairy on his own. And no robot before him had ever done anything like that before. Uh Uh-huh. He tells David that the Blue Fairy doesn't exist, but his dream to find her made him more human than any robot that came before him. Right. And he says, I thought I was one of a kind. And he tells him, my son was one of a kind, and you are the first of your kind. And then he's, he's very quiet, and I could not understand what he was saying, so I turned on the subtitles, and he tells him, my brain is falling out. Which I guess is something that you might feel if you were having all these revelations about yourself Right. And he asks them, would you like to meet your real mothers and fathers? The team is anxious to meet you. We want to hear all of your adventures and tell you what's in store for you next. And then he just leaves them alone in the office. I'm not sure why he didn't bring him with him, but he leaves them there. So he gets up and he starts looking around and he finds a ton more Davids. Except these Mm -hmm. ones are creepy plastic looking ones. They're not human looking.
2: Yeah, because they, they're all like in the assembly. It's like that scene in Toy Story with all the Buzz Lightyear toys, right? <laughs> it
1: is, kind of.
2: <laughs> yeah. And that, and there's also a, a female version, I think, that's called... I don't remember what it was called, but I think we also get a glimpse of that, right?
1: Yes, there's a bunch in giant doll packaging, and there's some that are labeled Arlene. Arlene, that's right. And I, I was wondering if maybe I just couldn't see the first letter, maybe they were Darlene, because David and Darlene sounds better, but... The ones that I saw just looked like they said Arlene.
2: Arlene is a weird name to pick to counterbalance David, I have to say. <laughs> if I respected something else. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's why I thought David and Darlene sounded better.
2: Right. So at this
1: point, he leaves the room. He goes and sits on the edge of the building. And then he whispers, Mommy, and falls off the building into the water. And mm-hmm. Joe is still there. He just left. And he watches this and he follows him, and he's falling through the water, and it looks like this school of fish is sort of carrying him through the water, and they leave him at the remnants of an old amusement park. And you can't see what he's looking at, but he sees something, and then at that point he's pulled out by Joe.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And he tells Joe that he saw where the Blue Fairy was, and he needs to go back. But at that point a helicopter flies over, pulls Joe up with like a giant magnet, I'm not sure exactly. I think it's just... I don't think it's supposed to be like a tractor beam. I think it's just a magnet.
0: Yeah. And
1: he tells David goodbye and to remember him to the ladies when he grows up. hmm And then he's pulled up, and as he's being pulled up, he hits the button that submerges the helicopter and sends David back down into the ocean.
2: Right. That's right. And it's David and Teddy, I think, in the boat, right? Yes. Or in the helicopter. Yes.
1: So he's driving around looking through all the displays and there's more fairy tale stuff here too.
0: Mhm. Mm-hmm.
1: And he eventually finds a Pinocchio land at this amusement park and he continues searching until he finds the blue fairy which is a statue of the blue fairy. Mhm. And at that point I think he had been like hitting a bunch of stuff as he'd been driving around and he dislodged a Ferris wheel and it falls on them and he's trapped there and it doesn't break anything it just traps them under the ocean yeah and he's just staring at her th- out the window pleading with her to make him into a real boy and he's just repeating over and over again please please make me into a real live boy
0: hmm
2: and I remember a lot of people or some people that I have encountered through the years saying that this is where the movie should have ended, that he should have ended with him at the bottom of the ocean, stuck there, pleading to the Blue Fairy for the rest of eternity, the end. But it is not where it ends. And I actually do really like the ending that they gave the too. movie. Yeah. So, yeah. So, tell us what happens next. <laughs>
1: You have a narrator. I'm not sure if it's the same narrator from the very beginning of the film, but you've never you haven't had a narrator through the whole film. Mm-hmm. And this narrator comes in and tells us that David prayed until the lights died and the oceans froze. He prayed until he couldn't move anymore. and then he just stared at her for two thousand years,
2: which is obviously sad and tragic. It's almost like a Greek kind of like punishment from the gods, right? Like the guy who has to bring up the rock over and over. Is that Sisyphus, I think?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think of it that way, but it kind of is. Except he's doing it because he wants to. He wants to basically pray to her, like the narrator says.
2: Yeah, that almost makes it more sad and pathetic, right? That he just he says this one thing and he won't relent, even though Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: And then you have the movie the movie basically changes again into a completely new story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because 2,000 years later, these beings visit him. And at the time that I first watched this, I thought they were aliens. But I, I read later some, that they're uh, not.
2: They're not. And I think that's a common mistake. In and in a lot of people, including myself, I think also the first time I saw it, think that they're aliens because they kind of look like aliens because they're like lanky and, and tall. Um, but they are supposed to be mechas of the future, like more evolved mechas, mm-hmm. And that's why... And that's why I was David feels so much like the missing link, right? Because also, what Professor Hobby said in that scene that you were quoting a, a couple of minutes ago, of telling him, you are the first of your kind to do all these new things. And obviously, the technology is going to keep evolving in that way and result in these much more advanced mechas. And he's kind of like the. You know, it's like when we found the Lucy, like, you know, the fossils of these ancient humans. It's kind of like that when the, when the alien I mean, not the aliens, the robots of the future find him.
1: Mm-hmm. You also have the scene where Joe was telling him that we are suffering from the mistakes they made because when the end comes, all that will be left is us. That's why they hate us.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Well, so it makes sense that these are robots, but the first time I watched it, I thought they were aliens.
2: They just look a lot like aliens and they don't look like the robots from the rest of the movie, because Mm -hmm. obviously 2000 years later, they don't have to look like humans anymore. There's no reason for that. So, but yeah, maybe the design uh, could have been a little more clear.
0: Yeah.
1: Their, their ships do kind of look like something that you would expect a robot to have though. They're sort of like cubic. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: They kind of remind me of bismuth. The it's like a mineral that grows into squares.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a good call.
1: So these future robots find David and Teddy and revive them. He gets out of the amphibicopter and he goes up to the Blue Fairy while the... I I kept writing beings because in my head, like, I I know they're not aliens, but they just, they seem like aliens to me. I kind of want them to be aliens, but I do like that they're robots too. Mm -hmm. But these beings these future robots are watching him as he's going up to the blue fairy
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they're speaking without speaking that they, they say this machine was trapped under the wreckage before the freezing therefore these robots are originals they knew living people and then mm-hmm. david touches the blue fairy statue and she crumbles and then he's suddenly like aware that he's being watched and I'm not sure if they like have telekinesis or if they have magnets or what, but one of them sort of looks like he's telekinetically lifting him and reading his mind. And then all of the robots link up and share David's memories. Mm -hmm. And then he suddenly wakes up in a room that looks like his home with Monica. Right. And he tells Teddy that they're home and he's going around calling for mommy and telling saying we're home. Where are you? And then you hear someone whispering, David, David, kind of (laughs) creepily, but trying not to be creepy. I don't know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then he finds an actual blue fairy who is played by Meryl Streep, which I did not realize until I was reading at this time. Yeah, And she says, you've been searching for me, haven't you, David, for my whole life? And after all this time, what have you come to ask me? Please make me a real boy so mommy will love me and let me stay with her. Mm -hmm. And the fairy tells him that she can do anything that is possible, but she can't make him into a real boy. And then we pan up and seeing that all these beings are above them, watching all this play out. They've kind of built this simulation thing for him out of his memories.
2: Yeah. In order, almost like in order to be able to communicate with him, um, in a yeah. way that he would understand, because he's such a different robot from what they are. But yeah. of course, it makes sense that they want to learn from him because, right, it's like we, if we unearth one of our ancestors, or like, if we've somehow, you know, had someone who lived in the time of Jesus or something, and we could talk to them and be like, how was that like, you know?
1: Yeah, but- yeah so they tell him through the blue fairy that he is extremely important to them that he's unique in all the world and then he just asks when mommy will be coming home and she tells him that she can never come home two thousand years have passed and she's no longer living and she tells him that if he's lonely she can bring back other people from his time and he demands to know that if they can bring back other people why not her and she says that they can only bring back people whose bodies they dig up from the ice they need a physical sample of the person they're bringing back in order to actually bring them back Mm -hmm. and then teddy comes forward and reminds him of the haircutting incident and reveals that he had saved monica's hair Mm -hmm. so he takes the hair from him and holds it out to the fairy and says now you can bring her back
2: yeah in a very very creepy moment again yes yes it's like
1: i don't know how i feel about this because on the one hand I really like David and I want, I'm rooting for him, but also he's being kind he sounds demanding. Like he feels entitled to this.
2: Well, it's the only thing that he's programmed to do so yes. And that's what makes this such a disturbing ending, I think, yes. which is yeah. I think not how a lot of people interpreted it, especially at the time. But I think, especially looking back on it, it, it is even more um, disturbing to me than initially.
1: I don't know that I interpret it very disturbingly. I, it, it's more sad well, to me than You're disturbing. right, you're
2: right. It's not as disturbing as it's sad. This moment is a little disturbing, just to yes. seeing him be so, like, this is the only thing I care about, do it for me, you know? Uh, yes. But I think you're right. The ending itself is more tragic, more sad.
1: hmm So, I think the narrator is actually one of these robots, and the narrator tells another one of them to give him what he wants. And the Blue Fairy takes the hair from him and tells him that his wish is her command. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then, I'm not sure how much time passes after this, but sometime later, one of them comes in to explain to David what they've been doing. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And they never say that they're artificial, but I guess they sort of imply it here. But if they're implying it, it's in a way that I don't think is obvious, because I didn't get it until I read it later. Right so they say that humans were always making new explanations for the meaning of life so humans must be the key to existence but humans no longer exist and these robots were always kind of jealous of the human spirit so they wondered if it would be possible to retrieve a memory trace from a resurrected human so they began a project to resurrect humanity but they found out that the very fabric of space-time itself appeared to store information about every event that had ever happened. And because of this, the human resurrection experiment failed because everyone they brought back dies immediately after falling asleep after only one day.
0: Mm-hmm. Because
1: once an individual space-time pathway had been used, it could never be reused. Mm-hmm. And this feels very science fictiony fairy tale to me, the way they're explaining all this. Yeah. Yeah. So they say, if they can bring his mother back, but it can only be for one day. And David says, well, maybe this time it will be different. Maybe this time she would stay. And then he says, maybe it will be like his one day in the amphibicopter. Maybe one day would last forever. So I'm not sure how much of a concept of time he has, because he talks about his time in the amphibicopter as one day, but it was 2,000
2: years. Right. I think, yeah, it's more like a an event becomes the measure of time right and and he knows that it it was much longer than other events but to him it's like a day is is a unit of mm. of action
1: yeah so this robot tells him that he is an enduring memory of the human race we only want for your happiness you've had so little of that and he says if you want for my happiness then you know what you have to do mhm And then the lighting here changes and they tell him that a new morning has come. She's just waking up. He needs to go to her. And he goes into Monica and he has like real tears running down his face, which I kind of wondered about. Like, that's Mm -hmm. interesting.
2: Yeah, that's certainly like, you know, it becomes a little bit magical realism, right? Of like, did he become a real boy? Is this like, you know, what's going on there? Um, is he actually different from the other mechas or whatever? Um, certainly these mechas that he encounters seem much more advanced in their in their mm-hmm. AI and in their intelligence than the ones that we meet before.
1: It, it kind of made me wonder if they are stimulating everything. Like if she's not like physically back, if they're just making him feel like she's back. I don't know. Because it does seem sort of impossible the way everything is turning out.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's more it makes more sense thematically for the movie than it does plot-wise, but yeah, yeah. I, I get what you're saying.
1: So, he says, I found you. And she says, hi, I must have dozed off. Would you like some coffee? Just the way you like it. And she says, I must be a little confused. What day is it? It is today. And the future Meccas told him not to tell her what's happening or she might become frightened. So Mm -hmm. he paints her pictures of everything that's happened to him, and then they have a birthday party for him because he's never had one.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: She says, no, make a wish to blow out the candles, and he says, it came true already.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And then the day comes to an end, and he puts her to bed, and she tells him that she loves him and hugs him as she, I guess she's dying at this point. She's going to sleep, but for all intents and purposes, she's dying. Right and they say this was the everlasting moment that he'd been waiting for he lies next to her and he goes to sleep too then they say and for the first time in his life he went to that place where dreams are born and i guess they're dying together but (laughs) i guess the thing that bothers me most is teddy is sitting on the bed watching them so they've just left teddy alone (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, well, Teddy will have a life with the new mecha robots. I think Teddy will adjust (laughs)
1: better than David will, actually. Oh, definitely,
2: 100%. (laughs) That is for sure.
1: They they probably will learn more from Teddy than they would have from David, because David was so singularly focused on Monica.
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, sad ending, right? Like, totally, like, bittersweet. Uh, Yeah. I would call it
1: bittersweet more than sad because on the one hand, it is sad. But on the other hand, he did get what he wanted. It just came with the price of them both dying.
2: There is something about it, though, that feels so... I don't know if realistic is the word, but that it gets at something about about humans and about human connection and about wanting that connection and about knowing that that connection is not going to last forever and having to face both death and Mm -hmm. loneliness and the fact that you, you know, the love that you feel for others cannot last forever. Like, I don't know, there's just something there. So to me, it's so profound in that ending that, that it feels right. I guess it feels wrong to just say that it's sad or even bittersweet because it just feels so big to me. It feels like it feels huge. I don't know if you feel that way at all.
1: I suppose if you really think about it, it does. I think I'm thinking of it more of just from just from David's perspective more than anything Mm -hmm. because he finally gets what he wants and he wouldn't have been happy if he'd lived on without her so even though he dies and it's sad it's sort of it it's not exactly happy that's why I call it bittersweet because yeah yeah
2: it's just but even the fact that he dies doesn't quite make that much sense right so it's kind of like this thing of like can he die? You know, like, I don't know that there's just, something. I, I
1: assumed he just turned himself off.
2: <laughs> like, which is, which is, in it's yeah. I mean, I, I, I didn't, I hadn't really thought that that would be a possibility, but I guess he, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. And it is, um, yeah. Like you're saying it, he's kind of doing it in his own terms, which I guess that's what makes it, that's the sweet part of the bittersweet combo, mm-hmm. I guess.
1: Yeah. Cause like, if he had kept on living after she died again, He would have Mm -hmm. just been miserable because
2: oh, absolutely! His
1: his only programming at this point is to love her, and without her, it doesn't seem like he has any other purpose.
2: Yeah, yeah, we we saw that in the whole amphibicopter. You know, those two thousand years—it's just relentless, and it was just for this brief moment, you know. So it's kind of like,
1: yeah, it's very existential. It also kind of contrasts. With the scene in the amphibicopter, because, like, he he called the 2,000 years his day in the amphibicopter. Mm -hmm. But then when she tells him he loves him, the narrator says that it was the everlasting moment he'd been waiting for.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: So it's like he can finally be happy, like, if this moment lasts forever. And that's why he goes to sleep with her.
2: Right. So that this moment never ends, which is yeah, which is also sad in its own way. Yeah. But, but it also feels so true to like how life feels sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's AI. So that's the movie. Yeah. Um, I guess, how do you feel about it as an adaptation of Pinocchio? I, I think I said my piece that I feel like it's obviously very loose. But I think that it's one of my favorites, kind of because yeah. of that, of what it allows to, to explore things that are so personal to the people making it.
1: Yeah, I think that this probably, well, it's definitely one of the best versions of Pinocchio, if if you're going to call it a version of Pinocchio, because like
2: right, right, most right, right.
1: versions of Pinocchio are kind of loose with the source material anyway, so that's why I say this one gets by on a technicality. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But of all the versions of Pinocchio I've seen up until I saw Guillermo del Toro's, I think this would have been my favorite, but I really did love mm-hmm. Guillermo del Toro's version, so I think that one yeah. is my favorite, but this mm-hmm. one is an extremely close second. Yeah. Because, like, I've I've never loved Pinocchio. Like, I liked the, the Disney movie fine. We watched it a lot when I was a kid.
2: Mm-hmm. But it's not been one of your favorites.
1: Like, I like the story well enough. I remember we also watched the one with Jonathan Taylor Thomas a bunch. Oh, yeah. So, like, I like the story, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but it's never been, like, something that I absolutely loved. So that's probably
2: why this one is one of my favorites, because
1: I think it's just so much better than all the other ones.
2: (laughs) Sure. I mean, I do love the Disney movie. It's one of my... But it's a one that I didn't grow up with that much. I didn't watch it that much as a kid and, it, and the story didn't necessarily speak to me. But watching it as an adult and just knowing the history of animation, I appreciate that movie a lot. And I just, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, dazzled by what they did with that and how good it is. Um, but, I, but this movie, AI, this is one of my favorite movies. Um, which is weird to say about a movie that i don't feel like i want to watch a lot because it just takes so much out of me and it's so kind of like yeah. <laughs> emotional and sad but uh, but i do think it's a it's a great movie and like i said I, I think Steven Spielberg you know he's no slouch he's one of the most important directors ever and i do really believe that this is his best movie for me
1: I guess I would need to see more of his work for me to decide if it's one of those. I mean, I love Jurassic Park, so I I can't Mm -hmm. say that I love this more than Jurassic Park, but it is up there.
2: He's made so many great movies, obviously, but I do think that this holds a special place for me uh, above the others.
1: Yeah, this holds a special place for me. Just in movies in general. I just I really Mm -hmm, love this mm -hmm. movie, even though I'm not sure exactly why I love it. Because there's so much in this movie that normally I wouldn't like.
2: Yeah. That's (laughs) what makes it special, you know? When a movie that does the things that you don't usually like, but it somehow it works, that kind of like makes it stand out even more.
1: I think that's probably why, because they've done it in such a way that I do like it, and that's why it has stuck with me so much. Mm -hmm. Because it's so much that I normally don't like, done in a way that I do like
0: <laughs> yeah yeah
1: well I guess do you have any final thoughts before we close the episode
2: I don't know I mean we've been talking for a while I think that I said almost everything I wanted to say um, yeah I mean I love this movie I think I agree with you that it's that it's a really special movie it's a great movie and it is a uh, interesting adaptation in terms of like thinking of it that way, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, I'm thank you for calling me and and having me on the show. I definitely love coming on here and talking about movies, and especially a movie that I like as much as this one.
1: Yeah. No, this is one of my. I, it 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 isn't one that comes to mind first when I try and list my favorite movies. But if I if I think long enough, I remember. Oh yeah, AI. I need need to remember that one. And it had mm-hmm. come to mm-hmm. my mind at some point last year and was like, I should do AI. And I'd already been planning on doing Pinocchio. And I guess for some reason, I I thought that this was a Criterion film. So my original idea was to have you and Rachel on because you have the Criterion podcast. And I thought that would be a good crossover. Mm-hmm. But I don't really know why I thought that, because it's apparently not a Criterion
2: film. <laughs> it's not, but, you know, it's a great movie, so it, it would definitely fit in the collection if they wanted to make a part of it. But, you know, that that's the whole, like, rights and who, that kind of thing. It's all, it's a company at the end of the day, right? But, but it definitely has that Criterion spirit, I guess, mm-hmm. in, in some ways.
1: Yeah, it feels like something that should be. Well, I mean, not that I've watched a ton of Criterion films, but mm-hmm. it feels like something that would fit in their collection. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, speaking of that podcast, do you want to Mm -hmm. tell people where they can find more of you?
2: For sure. So there's a couple of things. There's the Criterion Project, which is the podcast that uh, Jonathan mentioned, which I co-host with film critic Rachel Wagner, a very good friend of both of ours. Um, And where we talk about movies that are in the Criterion channel or the Criterion collection or both. Um, We just did an episode about the movie Pillow Talk from the 50s with Rock Hudson, Doris Day. And we release a new episode every two weeks. So you can find that uh, wherever podcasts are available if you search for Criterion Project. And other than that, I have a web series on YouTube called Wormholes, which is a sci-fi comedy sort of sitcom. Um, There's two whole seasons of that that are available on YouTube if you search for Wormholes, the series. And... Finally, I'm acting in a movie that's coming out that's going to be on streaming and on, and I think also on Tubi and on Amazon Prime and in some other platforms. It's a, it's a horror movie called Cram and I play a supporting role in it. It was directed by my very good friend, A.B. Seidel. Um, and it's a very fun horror movie about academia, about this guy who can't finish his term paper, and he's stuck in this haunted library. Um, it's very fun. It won an award at the Austin Film Festival last year, so we're very proud of that, and the movie's coming out soon on streaming. I think it comes out on March 17, I want to say, so by the time you're listening to this, it probably be out. Um, so yeah, you can check all of that stuff if you want to see or hear more of me.
1: i might have to watch that. I don't normally like horror movies, but It sounds interesting, and the fact that you're in it might make me want to sit through it, even though I don't normally like horror
0: movies.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, I think it's worth it's, it's very unique. It's not, um, I would say it's a little more creepy and eerie and weird than it is like outright terrifying. So that might, that's, that's how I a prefer point. them to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you might enjoy it. And it's a short movie, it's, it's about an hour long, I think. So, um, okay. it's a, it's a quick sit. I know that a lot of people love when a movie's short. So
1: sometimes I prefer that. Yeah. (laughs) Depends on the movie. Some movies wear out their welcome.
2: (laughs) Yeah, some movies wear out their outcomes, and some other movies you'd never want them to end, so yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, well, thanks for joining me for this. I'm sure we'll have you back for another episode in the future.
0: Yeah.
2: So, until next time. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time, and I'm looking forward to coming here again.